Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good evening and welcome to the Royal Academy. My name is Amy Blewett and I am the events and lectures programmer here. I'm delighted to welcome you to this very special event tonight with artists Yinka Shonabara and David Shrigley, who come together tonight to share their experience of creating public work for London, specifically the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square, and to discuss new work and art making more generally. I'd like to thank the Stephen Friedman Gallery for their support in putting this event together. And I'm going to introduce each of the artists now and then hand over to the panel. Royal Academician Yinka Shonabara is best known for confronting issues of race and class in work that spans media, including painting, sculpture, photography, film, and performance. His exhibition, And the Wall Fell Away, currently on at the Stephen Friedman Gallery, marks a pivotal moment in his practice, with the complete absence of Dutch wax batik textiles for which he is known, and new forms such as mural painting, bronze sculpture, screen prints on canvas, and the appropriation of classical sculpture. Since being a Turner Prize nominee in 2004 and awarded the de decoration of the member of the, of the most excellent order of the British Empire, Yinka has continued to exhibit in group and solo shows at leading museums in the UK and worldwide. Yinka has also designed the hoarding displayed on our Billington Gardens site while it undergoes restoration in preparation for the Royal Academy's 250th anniversary in 2018. So joining him in conversation tonight is artist David Shrigley, who is probably best known for his distinctive drawing style that makes satirical comments on the everyday. While drawing is at the centre of his practice, David also works across an extensive range of media, including sculpture, large-scale installation, animation, painting, photography and music. His work can be found frequently outside the gallery sphere, such as in artist publications, collaborative music projects, and more recently, in, he transformed the gallery at Sketch Cafe in London as part of a long-term programme of artist-conceived restaurants. David was also a Turner Prize nominee in 2013, which followed his major mid-career retrospective at the Hayward Gallery, entitled Brain Activity. His recent work commissioned for the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square, Really Good, was unveiled last month. Standing at seven metres high, cast in bronze, giving an extended thumbs up, it's been said that David's ambition is that this simple gesture will become a self-fulfilling prophecy, that things considered bad, such as the economy, the weather and society, will benefit from a change of consensus towards positivity. So joining both artists to discuss their work is Dr Gilda Williams, who is an art critic and lecturer on the MFA curating programme at Goldsmith College. She is a regular contributor to Art Forum, and her writing has appeared in Freeze, The Guardian, Tate, etc., Burlington Magazine, and more. Her recent books are On and By Andy Warhol, a reader, a reader comprising an annotated selection of key works written by and about the American artist, and the best-selling art book, How to Write About Contemporary Art. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming our guest for tonight's event. Thank you. Thank you very much for that introduction, and thank you to the RA for inviting us, and to Yinka and uh, David for um, agreeing to speak tonight with you together. Generally speaking, we don't really, these kinds of conversations tend to be one artist uh, at a time. It's fairly unusual to be uh, asked to discuss two, but in fact, when I thought about it, it's actually one of the oldest art historical 
uh, techniques in the book, isn't it? Where you take two artists, a, 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 a Giotto and a Duccio or something, and you, uh, or Chimabu or something, and you decide, okay, so let's, looking at them together, you actually see more or see things you might not have uh, separately. Um, initially, I thought, well, of course, both have done important commissions for the fourth plinth, as we know, uh, David's, uh, which has just been unveiled really good. Uh, and Yinka Shudabar's um, very um, popular, very very, very kind of beloved uh, Fourth Plinth Commission, which was Nelson's ship HMS Victory in a bottle back in 2010. Uh, but actually, as I looked at them uh, together, I realized that they, they share more than, than I initially thought. Uh, certainly something about Britishness, about belonging and, and not belonging, and what that is. Um, something about class. Uh, it comes up in both their work. Um, they're both known for a kind of signature style or signature materials, but then as soon as you start looking at that, you realize they've done many, many, many other things, not least uh, in uh, David's case uh, tonight, uh, as a large uh, bronze sculpture rather than uh, perhaps his better known uh, drawings, but he's done, uh, just as David has done, um, posters, sculptures, drawings, books, uh, you know, many, many, many other kinds of things. And Yinka Shonabara is well known for his sort of um, tableau, often originally um, restaging um, painting classics. Uh, that has been uh, definitely widened in the exhibition um, on view now at the Stephen Friedman Gallery in the Walls Fell Away, in which there's um, new kinds of paintings, sculptures, and wall works and floor works. Uh, so um, without further ado, uh, shall I, I'm wondering, um, both these exhibitions, both of your projects on view now, the exhibition in Yinka's case and the fourth plinth, uh, certainly deal with um, a state we're in right now in Britain, uh, and the walls fell away. The title itself, I think, has something to do with building and, and, and um, taking down or building walls. Uh, and of course, uh, the, your really good has been interpreted by some as being very optimistic, you know, London's open for business and all of that, and by others, uh, for example, in The Guardian, as being perhaps less, somewhat more ironic or um, uncertain. Uh, so I, I wonder if you could start with that, how your works perhaps are responding to the situation um, you feel we're in now. Okay. Okay. Um. Yeah, well, I, I, I think that the, the work that I've made for the fourth plinth is um, is still kind of forming, in a way, in my mind, kind of what it means. Um, I, I, when I was uh, when it was unveiled a couple of weeks ago, I um, I guess I was told people that it was um, like optimistic and it was a self fulfilling prophecy so that the world would get better because I said it was going to get better kind of thing. And, um, and then I realized that that was obviously nonsense, but I kind of, then upon reflection, I believed it. Um, you know, because you have to have something to say when they ask you things. And, um, but then I'd started, uh, yeah, I, I started thinking about it. And I hadn't really, you know, I hadn't really seen it finished uh, until it was unveiled and then I had to and then you know there was like a 
all the media stuff and then there was the lunch and then there was the, I had a nap and then there was the dinner and then I had to go back to, to Brighton the next day and then, um, and then I had to go away for an exhibition and I haven't been, I was going to come this afternoon and have another look <laughs> it at good. it. It looks good, it looks good. Thanks. And, um, but I didn't have time, so, uh, so I'm not really quite sure whether maybe I was wrong. Maybe it isn't that optimistic because um, I don't really read the newspapers, but apparently they wrote about it in the newspapers and said that maybe it wasn't optimistic, that it was actually ironic. So now I'm, uh, I don't really know. I, I need to go back and well, have when, a look. When, was it when did you actually make the proposal? When was it sort of... I, I, I made the proposal in... Um, I mean, it's quite a lengthy process, the commissioning process. It, it was four years ago that they, uh, they invite a group of artists. Um, I presume it was the same for Yinka's uh, experience as well. And you submit a proposal... And when I submitted the proposal, I didn't imagine that they'd actually commission it. Uh, and then they, I got on the short list and I thought, oh, right, it might, it might come to pass. And then it did come to pass. And then I was like, oh, no, right, so I'm going to have to like, um, follow through on that ridiculous statement that I made, um, which I sort of wrote as uh, like in character as like some kind of policy wonk from the thick of it, you know, that, uh. that TV satire, political satire. Um, so, yeah, I think ultimately the way I navigated that in a way sort of wonderful but then slightly difficult situation was that I reassessed what I'd said and um, decided it was actually true and not ironic. Ah, oh, oh, okay. Uh, but, you know, but then also ironic at the same time. And that sort of, you know, duality of opinions was, um, was interesting, for me at least. But it, uh, there's, I mean, the irony of the, the column and the sort of, the, the exaggerated, the sort of, you know, the elastic thumb and all of that. I mean, there's some, it's, it's the universe. Yeah, oh yeah, the column and all the big thumb, yeah, there's that too. <laughs> The, you know, I, I thought of that things. when we were told yesterday that art history is soft, and I thought, well, it's, it's not soft. Your sculpture is really not soft, is it? No, it's hard. Um, it's the interesting thing. Mine was commissioned with Han, Hans Hack's piece, which was, if you recall, was the skeletal horse with the um, uh, stock market information tied in a bow around its foreleg. Um, and when they were they were commissioned together and they were introduced together as future commissions, and Hans Hack had written a press release basically which sort of tied up everything. You know, it was like Adam Smith's treatise on capitalism was written in the same year as Stubbs's horse was first displayed in the Royal National Gallery, and I was like. And then my statement was the antithesis of that, I suppose. It was just sort of nebulous nonsense. And um, I suddenly felt as if I was lacking on a number of levels. <laughs> but I think that uh, the interesting thing, the, the way that I approach making art, I suppose, is that you have to... Um, I don't know. I, I like to figure out what it means after I've made it. Mm, right. <laughs> and I think that's a, that, that is... Um, probably a bad idea as far as somebody like Hans Hack's concerned but um, I, I guess you have to acknowledge that making a public work 
it, you're not fully in control of what it means for everybody anyway. So people project their own meaning onto it. So I, I, I'm quite excited by the fact that, you know, it is such a um, undefined statement, mm. ill-defined statement. Now, you get the, the show um, and the walls fell away. When, when were you thinking of that? What were you, um, when was that sort of conceived and what were your aims there in particular? It's a lot of new kinds of work. Well, first of all, I mean, I can't guarantee uh, to be as funny as David Shriek. <laughs> <laughs> I should try. <laughs> no, uh, on a more serious note, Actually, I was going to do, when I met with Stephen Friedman uh, and we talked about the show, the whole show was actually going to be very kind of dreamy, poetic, you know, I just wanted to escape from the world. It was all going to be about surrealism or something, it was going to be. And then, you know, I'd be sort of drawing away and then I'd have the, I always have the radio on, so have the radio on and they'd be like, you know, just that pan, like, I don't know, 100 million people died in Iraq or something, you know, and then all the kind of bombings and everything. And, and I just, and then, of course, you know, Brexit also happened. And it just became completely normal to be racist on, you know, in the media. It just, I mean, and the whole thing, and then the whole Trump thing happened as well. So, and then I thought, you know, prejudice is actually normal. I mean, people openly say this. And so I just thought, why are we putting up all these walls that don't actually need to be there? And so that's kind of where, you know, and the wall fell away came from. And also, um, I actually, I'm an idealist in a way. I guess that's why I'm an artist. I, I'm kind of old fashioned. I think that art can actually make the world better. I think. You know, it's not fashionable to think that, but I, I really think you can create an alternative world through your art. You can create, you know, so the, the worlds I created in this exhibition, they're kind of fantasy worlds, really. They're kind of, you know, aspects of, of different cultures that have deliberately merged into each other, you know. So in the room with the saints, there are African religious masks kind of merged with um, Catholic saints. These are these very beautiful, colorful paintings on view now at, at, at Stephen Friedman's that are, are quite different from what we are familiar with. Yes, and then, you know, then I started sort of looking, reading about, you know, um, humanism and the concept of the just the universal human that sort of transcends this sort of uh, divide that people like to impose. So in many ways, it's actually a very naive exhibition because the world is not actually like that. I mean, people don't want to cross. They, they, they want to have walls. I mean, you know, people like walls. But, but, you know, I'm saying it's actually possible not to do that. Right. But one, one thing I think both of you 
um, do very well is you, there's iconography and imagery that we actually are familiar with, a kind of collective unconscious, whether it's Vitruvian Man, who in, in the exhibition, there's a beautiful vinyl uh, floor piece which whereby Vitruvian Man becomes um, androgynous and a black person, and it's, it's, it's much less, uh, well, it's, it's no longer a, a, a white guy. Uh, and and uh, your work also, I, I'm, I'm thinking of the memorial, another public work, which is the shopping list that's been sort of chiseled into to granite. It's, it's really fantastic, you know, it's sort of apples and pears and glue and whatever you need at the supermarket. Um, so it's, 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 it's a text we're familiar with, it's a, even a form we're familiar with, but putting them together in, in very different ways. I mean, is that, you both seem really interested in uh, using imagery, whether from art history or from <coughs> everyday life, that's, that's quite familiar, no? Is that something, I mean, are you always observing, are you looking for those sort of either images or texts that, that will, can be shifted and resonate with, um, with an audience. Well, I mean, I don't know if I can say this for you, David, but I think perhaps we both don't like elitism, so we use things that people generally know already. Mm. I mean, is that, was that simplistic? I don't know. Um, I don't know. I think you're, you're, you sort of become... Um, unaware of your own language after a while or you know your language as a as an artist it's like you kind of I, I feel I can't um, art, art is sort of one of those activities where um, you figure out it, it's like you're the expert at it but it's an activity that you invented so of course you're going to be an expert kind of thing um, and and in in that way, you know, I feel like my um, language, your vocabulary, visual vocabulary, is something that, after a certain point, uh, I've become sort of unaware of, unaware of using, and I, I don't really, um, yeah, I, I I can't really see the work objectively like other people see it. I mean, I can see yours, I suppose, but <laughs> you know, and I can see I can see the language that you use. And over, you know, I, I guess I've been looking at it for 20 years, you know. Um, so it's, it's work that I'm quite familiar with. So, I un so yeah, I mean, I, I, I understand what your work looks like and, and the things that, um, probably things that you're perhaps unaware of doing, if you know what I mean. I have a more objective overview of, of it visually, perhaps. Um, and probably vice versa, I think that... Um, I, don't, I don't feel that aware of what I'm doing somehow. But I mean, you, you're, you're both, you know, very, very well known. You've got practices that have been established a long time. There must be something that needs to motivate you to go back to the studio, to start again, to not repeat yourself. I mean, what what is it? You, you said a really interesting thing in the interview with Duro Olowu um, recently, which is an artist need, also needs space to fail, um, which I think, uh, you know, at Fourth Plinth is a very public place where one never wants to fail um, and and is that something that becomes in a way more precious as people have greater expectations or greater kind of place for you in the pantheon of artists in, our, in Britain well I mean the, the notion of failure is one that I, I think as an artist you're failing all the time like you have to be prepared to jump like you have to be you can't hesitate I mean, you don't know if it's going to be successful or not, but but you just have to be prepared to to make that leap. And 
it may fail, it may not. I mean, it's all that's all relative as well. You know, whether something is a success or not, you know, a success. But, I mean, I think that um, the idea of kind of process I very much uh, support. And, you know, I do a project space, as you know. Mm-hmm. And the real point of my project space is that artists can actually have a break. You know, they can have a place to fail. This is a, a space in the East End that Yinka very generously allows anyone really to propose, and if it's if it's successful, it's a good idea. You're yeah. willing to stage, um, and there's seen some great. Yeah, I mean, it kind of actually. takes nepotism out of it. You know, there's a there's a box outside the space, and you just put your proposal in there. And I do about five projects a year. You don't have to know anybody. You don't have to hang out with anybody. I mean, if your ideas are good, you you know you'll get to do a show there. And but then you don't have to actually make a show. You can just make work, or you can choose to show it. You know, and I never do solo shows. It's all group shows. So actually, the idea is central. Um, you know, artists get together, and which is how I kind of started. I guess I got together with people and we just made shows. You know, and um, and I think it's that kind of thing. But I think that the pressure of the market is so huge on artists now that they don't really want to push themselves or they're worried that perhaps, you know, maybe the market won't want that. And I think, I mean, it's a shame, you know, that quite early artists are thinking about the market, you know, rather than actually having the the, the space to actually experiment, you know. I, I know in your work... Um there's a lot of editing. Not not everything succeeds, right? You throw it's, you, if I'm not mistaken, you do a lot of work, and maybe only a quarter um, actually is a becomes a David Frigley, <laughs> or um, is leaves the studio. Yeah, it's a work on paper. Yeah, certainly, but it's easy to throw work on paper away um, or recycle it anyway. Right. Um, I think, but I think you know what Inka says about. Um, I mean, when you make a project. A bigger project. It's not all, if you're if you're making a sculptural work or a a work outside or a work that has a real you know presence in 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 every way. Like the fourth plinth, obviously. Yeah, you have to just jump and just do it, and and that's the only way to do it. I mean, I guess that's what I I would say you know say to students when they get tied up in knots and you just say just just do it, you know. And you'll figure it out along the way. I, I'm I'm a big advocate of that attitude. But for example, let's not to have too much techie stuff. But in both your cases, you must have had small maquettes, which then had to become big things on a big plate. Were there adjustments and surprises and and engineering issues? I mean, that must be quite you know a, a difficult place to make a risk and a leap. No. Yeah. yeah, it's hard. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, um, I guess Yinka's work was much more about referencing existing uh, things and trying to make it look a certain way, whereas uh, the, the work that I made was perhaps a bit more sculptural, in the sense that I made an actual sculpture and then spent eight weeks in a cold studio in Edinburgh finishing off this gigantic model. Did you have to make adjustments to make it work? Yeah, yeah, I had to make a lot. Yeah, it drove me nuts. Um, <laughs> it was hard. I mean, and it's, you'd never know what I did to it anyway, so yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think in a way, in a way, they're making that work is... Um, there's something quite easy about making a model. I think it's much harder, actually, to make 
a really hands-off conceptual work where you're just referencing things and allowing somebody else to make things look a certain way because that for me I find that really difficult um, I, I, it's something that I find sort of it's difficult to um, to be satisfied with afterwards because it's sort of yeah I sort of battle with the kind of conceptual versus a more hands-on approach I suppose well I mean I think the ship in a bottle is actually more complex than people think mm. because the engineering I mean we nearly gave up on it because to actually scale that bottle up that way it was actually very difficult to get it right and it was a place in Italy <coughs> and that bottle has air conditioning inside mm. as well to, to control condense. the temperature it's also got solar panels in it as well for lighting so it's actually it's, it's a very complex Piece. And you have to think about temperature. You have to also think about, you know, uh, UV, um, you know, kind of resistant uh, sure. glass because of the the lighting and everything. And then the fabrics. You have to also think about UV dyes as well because of the heat. So it's actually a very complicated. So I think as an artist, you know, in the way that an architect will require you know, an engineer. I mean, you certainly need specialists to do it. Otherwise, you risk the, the thing kind of collapsing or, you know, you need some science to actually realize the piece. So, you know, more expertise. You know, it's not sculpture in the traditional way of sculpture. In a way, it's actually anti-sculpture. That, that, well, for me, my, my piece, it, it's anti-sculpture and it's not... And also, it's not didactic either. You know, when you have a, a soldier, you know, on the plinth, you're saying something very specific. Mm. Whereas with what I would call contemporary anti-public sculpture, you're actually refusing that definite reading of the piece because some people actually thought the work was really patriotic and it was really celebrating Empire and celebrating Nelson. And some people thought, oh, good on you, protest that. You know, so it's kind of, and I think that's kind of where it works, where every kind of reading actually fails because it's, it's so ambivalent. So, and I, I, I feel the same, actually, about David's work. I was going to say, it's the I same. feel the same. I think that some people might think, oh, you know, great Brexit, you know, thumbs up. Oh, oh, it doesn't mean that. It means anything you want, but it doesn't mean that. Exactly. But then, but then some people might think, oh, actually, you know, it, it's optimism about something more positive, you know. So, but I think that's where, for me, contemporary public sculpture works, because I think that we've lost, you know, we, we no longer live in this kind of, you know, uh, patriotic, uh, male-dominated kind of society or kind of where we you know, just worship, blindly worship heroes. I mean, we're, we're in a less deferential um, time. So, you know, it's kind of two fingers in the, up. You know, we're not going to be um, celebrating sort of, well, I mean, some people still do, but I think a lot of contemporary artists wouldn't be doing that. So, 
Although, I mean, I always thought one of the beautiful things about the, the ship in the bottle, there it is, it was, the, the, it was so beautiful outside in the sun. I mean, it just glinted and also, if it, if it were in a bottle, it was just the ship. Like, like that, it's, 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 um, it was a toy that's been made gigantic. You know, there's, if it were just a ship, it could have been a, a well, very it's, different... Well, it's making the playful, non-heroic, mm. heroic yeah. in a heroic setting. But it's the antithesis of the of the heroic. Yeah, it's yeah. a toy. Yeah. It's it's. <laughs> you both actually worked with a kind of giganticism, and you sort of made things big, in a way that's not really not really pop art though. It's it's a, it's a different kind of. Uh, uh, yours, of course, more cartoonish, and that's something. Does it, is it is it a big cartoon rather than a, a sculpture? Is it is a cartoon writ large? Um, I, I always think when when I was at art school, I think one of the one of the sort of lessons that I'd felt I'd learned was um, that you don't make anything bigger than it needs to be, mm. and that you don't make. I guess you don't necessarily make anything smaller than it needs to be, or longer than it needs to be, or shorter than it needs to be. So um, yeah, I'm always aware of you know I've made work. You know, I'm best known for making work that's very, very abbreviated. Mm. You know, very small and and um, work without craft and without uh, without a lot of sophistication. So, um, yeah, making a, a massive work, it has to have a reason to be massive. Mm. And that's okay. dictated by the size of the plinth, I suppose, and by you know by the size of the project. So that's that's um, that's interesting. I mean, when when you think about st student work and you look at students' work and you see the things that they've done, it's just like, all right. So they didn't really have an idea. They either just made a lot of it, or they made it really big, or <laughs> something right. like that, as a, as a kind of um, a solution to a to a to a problem of of meaning. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I, I guess I'm very struck with how, like this piece, which I've, is is was just unveiled oddly a, a few two weeks before the fourth plinth, um, that I'm suddenly getting these big. I invited to make these big things that have to be big so that people can see them, and um, yeah, how do you how do you get over that? I don't know. You like Inca says, you just do it, and and then you end up talking about it for years afterwards. I guess. <laughs> but, yeah. but I think play is a very important thing in the public, you know, in the public realm. I think that doing something that's playful in public, you know, even if it's really big, I think it's, it's very important just because of the history of public sculpture hmm. of that kind. You know. Historically, it's always been oppressive, you know. I mean, dictators like really big sculptures, you know, like Saddam Hussein and his, you know, the swords, you know, the crossing swords. You probably know that piece. And, and that's... So if artists can kind of flip that, and because historically, you know, it's really dodgy to do really serious art in, in the public realm, I think. You know, what I was... When you were talking about the way things sort of attach to the world, the artworks attached to the world, it seemed your exhibition was in a way a, 
a sort of encyclopedic idea about things adhering to the floor, and then there's a, a painting on the a mural on the wall, and then there's paintings, and then actually, interestingly, the the the, the, the remakes of the um, the cover versions of classical sculptures, let's say, are also on pedestals. Uh, that was uh, that's obviously you're obviously very very attentive to the way things are going to attach to the world in that way. Was that? I mean, would, would those sculptures work without the pedestal? I mean, the fourth plinth obviously is a pedestal. That's its whole sort of uh, matrix. I mean, I think it's the thing of paying some close attention to history and play, paying attention to, you know, how works and are traditionally displayed mm. and then what I'm actually doing to tradition. So, in a way, I'm sort of interfering with tradition, but I'm not changing it too much so that it still looks the same. It's just different. Right. I mean, in this case, you've also sort of designed your own Dutch wax fabric, if I'm right. It sort of is and yes. isn't. So that now you're sort of um, kind of riffing on, a, on, on, on your own sort of signature. Um, well, I think teeth. because I've been doing the, using the fabrics for so long, I felt that, you know, I can actually create a kind of, I've developed my own shorthand, my own, my own language, you know, as David was saying, you know, you kind of develop your own language. And so I can actually, I don't need to actually have the fabric. You know, I felt in this show, I don't need to have it. People already know about the fabric. Right. I can actually start, I can start playing with it now. Right. I can start doing, you know. Again, in your conversation with Dory, you, you put it really nicely. There's the, the trace of the fabric, right? There's sort of a, you yes, know, I mean, I wanted to have a trace of it, to leave, you know, trace of it. Um, and then that's quite different from the actual material. So it, it's the, you know, it's a reflection, in a way, of the fabric. One thing I wanted to ask you, David, was um, actually on the occasion of this, I, of course, had to the pleasure of looking at a lot of your work, and a lot of it's really dark. I mean, I mean, the subject of death comes up a lot, like the bird on a wire being electrocuted and the taxidermied dog with bearing a sign that says, I'm dead, uh, and uh, the 41 dead fig figurines and stuff that turn into rather decorative pieces. I mean, there's actually quite a bit of, um, I mean, I always think of your work as uh, quite light and a bit, you know, um, um, cartoonish and so forth, but actually the subject matter is uh, is not always so sweet. Yeah, yeah, I guess it is. You're right. <laughs> it's not so cheerful. Um, I watched a, I actually watched a, a film that I made in 2005 on YouTube um, the other day that I hadn't seen for a long time. It's called a film called Who I Am and What I Want and I made it as a commission for Channel 4. Um, and I was, I thought, oh my God, that's really disturbing. <laughs> and the, the, when I made it, it seemed really funny. And now it seems really horrifying. <laughs> what happened? Could you describe the, the um, It's just a, a, a character with a sequence of vignettes um, about who he is and what he wants, basically, his, um, his identity and his desires, most of which are, are just either perverse, bizarre, or really quite disturbing. It ends with the line, when I'm dead, I want to come back as a ghost and dig up my own corpse. Mm. 
which at the time I thought was hilarious. <laughs> but okay. I, in retro, as the years have passed, I suddenly think, what is going on? It's, Do you, yeah. you, you've placed yourself in your work in the Victorian Dandy and the Dorian Gray, and not as much any longer. And I, I just was wondering about if also both whether you want to, you think you will return in, in the, within the subject matter of your work, but also who your, who your, David, who your characters are. I mean, is it you, or is it the everyman, or is it, are they, they're different voices. So let me ask you first, Yinku, um, are you um, keen to return at all? Does that cross your mind again well, in your work? Well, I think in a way that's not the question, because I'm always there in the work. Right, of course. Because, you know, I presume that people see the pattern, they see me. You know, so I, f I think that you can't actually be there without actually being literally there, mm -hmm. if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. And so I think the artist is always present in a way, like your subjectivity is always present. So um, literally, of course, I put myself in photographs. I mean, the, the last time I did it was when I recreated the Warhol camouflage portrait and using myself as Warhol. Mm. Um, but I think that it just depends on what I want to do in the future, whether I will do that or not. But going back to what you were saying about darkness in the work, in the early part of my, of my work doing sculpture, I actually used to behead everything. You know, there were... Yes, the guillotine or... Yeah, yeah, they were kind of beheaded. And it was funny at the time, actually. But then when all this kind of terrorism and actual beheading started happening, I realized that actually, you know, this is not a joke. And so for a while, I haven't actually done that in my sculpture. Um, you know, and I was actually doing that as a kind of, it was more like gallows humor. It was, you know, it was, but then it's now looking quite serious. So, and, and I've been using the globe heads instead. Yes, and, you're, and the painted figures are intact. Or they have masks, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, they're masks, And occasionally yeah. hatchets, so... <laughs> <laughs> yes, question, okay. yeah, but, but, you know, but it's kind of funny that I, I started to feel less comfortable mm. with doing that. Right, too close. Do you think it's a time-of-life thing, where you just get, you know, don't want to think about nasty things anymore? Well, yes. I mean, I think also as you get, as one gets older, the anger kind of, I guess, goes away a bit or, you know, not as strong as, as before. And also, unfortunately, I guess people tend to be a bit more mellow as they, as they get older. I think it's a biological thing. Yeah, I think you're right. I stopped making taxidermy, but that's because I got a dog. Oh, oh really? I can't keep too close again. But are you in the work? Is it is it is it you? You know, tying your shoe or or, or doing the event things in the pictures? Well, I, I suppose it has to be. Um, you know, I, you have to be in the work, as Inka says. You you know, you're present there. But um, yeah, oddly, I don't really want to think about it at the moment because <laughs> right. it's it's quite. There are some well, there are some things that I've done in the past where I, it makes me wonder about my uh, mental health, to be honest with you, <laughs> some of the things I've said. 
as a, albeit as an artist kind of thing. Do you, um, will you redo it? Like if you do a drawing and say, oh, it's close, I'll redo it, or is, is each page a, a new, you know, a new world? Um, no, I tend to do it just once, you know, I have oh, yeah. a certain, um, I don't know, like Barnett Newman with a bit of tape, you know, you couldn't ever do it twice. <laughs> so there, there is an element of that. Unless, of course, I spill coffee on it, in which case I'll do it again. That might make it better. It might make it better, yeah. Um, no, I tend to just do things once, but in a way that's just a... Uh, it's sort of a, a mannerism, I suppose. Um, and I, it doesn't get any better when you do it twice. I'm actually sort of slightly obsessive-compulsive and superstitious about it, whereby I feel oh, really? like, you know, my my... <laughs> My dog will die if I do it twice, kind oh, right. of thing. It's like rewriting a letter. It's really got to be the first one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just, I don't know. It's just a kind of weird madness. I just do it once. Um, you said a few times that you weren't necessarily at the top of your class at Glasgow. Is it? Um, I was also going to ask you, Gink, if you were... I know you've gone back now to paint. I believe it's been a long time that you hadn't done paintings like you're doing now were you um were you recognized quickly was it pretty clear in in school even that you were kind of going places when what was uh when did you uh, when did everyone spot <laughs> where things were going in your case yes uh well when i was at the bar i'm sure in my first year i got a you know a, a painting prize uh, for my portrait painting, I used to paint sort of you know nudes and all that, and um, you know figures you're painting, and then I got really politicized, and I dropped all the all the people I used to kind of uh, all the tutors, and thought I was going to go somewhere, and they wanted me to go to the Slade and do figurative painting, and uh -huh. possibly paint like there's a painter called uh, Ion Uglo. They used to measure everything. Oh, okay. and, uh, so there was a possibility that I would go in that direction, but I decided to drop it all and just um, become really political. And um, so I kind of rebelled against it, all even right. though I was being encouraged to kind of go in one direction. But I, re I rebelled. Which was painting, in yeah, addition yeah, to the yeah. subject matter, right? Right. And you, you said, David, that you you knew though that although cartooning and graphics and you you couldn't abandon being an artist though. I mean you had to it had to be both seen in that world and also talked about or or um understood within a kind of somehow in an art context I, well I guess I mean when I left art school there wasn't in 1991 in in Glasgow you know there wasn't really the opportunity to be an artist. It wasn't a career path that seemed that it was available. And there wasn't any precedent really for people who, maybe people who weren't figurative painters making a, a living as an artist. So I, yeah, I thought I'd have to have another course. And it wasn't even until I actually became a professional artist that I realized that that was a possibility. So, um, How long after you, well, I mean, like, Within. Maybe five, six years okay. um, after art school. But uh, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I've had, had experience of the world of illustration and design and the world of advertising and the world of music 
um, the music industry. And um, the world of fine art is by far the best uh, professionally to be in because um, you can do whatever you like and you get paid a lot of money. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> to, to put it bluntly, um, whereas nowadays in the world of advertising, for example, you have a brilliant idea and then some client vetoes it and you don't get paid and it's just a giant pain. It's really dispiriting. So in the old days, you used to get paid a lot of money for doing things like that, but those days are gone. Um, and whilst, yeah, I think the world of fine art, not, not just because the rewards are, 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 are significant, I think that people, um, people are, don't ask you questions like, annoying questions like, where did you do that? What does it mean? They accept that, you know, it means something. And, you know, the reason why you did it is because you're an artist kind right. of thing. Um, so I think that, uh, I think the, the, the world of fine art is far more generous. Um, and uh, I know a lot of people who are musicians, for example. And, I, yeah, I just feel like their lives are miserable compared to mine. They're more freedom. <laughs> yeah, even though, like, they, you know... <laughs> get groupies and take drugs and stuff I still feel like my life has always been better because I'm you know just it's more fun being an artist because you get to do really whatever you want and there are some things that you have to do that you don't really want to do like I don't know like I don't know well you're talking about having to explain your work over and over and over for example, just somehow sometimes getting a little... Yeah, I mean, you do have to do that, I suppose, but that's, that passes, you know, it doesn't take that long to explain my work. And um, <laughs> you have to make the stuff, I guess, as well. That's kind of hard work. And there's always somebody who's doing it wrong, who's helping you and... You, know. you said you, that you're, uh, if you're, I don't know if you still think that, that studio life isn't really for you. I mean, you're not always in the studio. You have a kind of, you look around at the world, you find time for... Yeah, no, I mean, I go to the studio um, in the afternoon about three o'clock. About three o'clock? Yeah. And I come back from the studio at six o'clock. But I only do three days a week. Right. And so you have time to look at art, to smell well, the roses, to... time to... I actually think that if you're an artist, be, the time that you're actually in the studio is not... Well, for me anyway, is not when I'm being an artist. It's, right. I'm, you know, when I'm actually thinking and I'm, I don't know, looking at the sky or whatever, you know, reading books, hanging out with people... I mean, you know, I do have another studio in my back garden, but I'm, you know, I'm not in there all the time. But, you know, I, this, the way my studio is set up, is I've got, it's more of a, it's more of a kind of a community studio. You know, I have people there and I have a project space there. And it's also where I go to deal with the kind of, you know, admin, curators, meetings, curate, you know, all that. <coughs> And then the studio in my back garden is where I do my screen prints and do my, you know, actual hands-on work. But I don't actually have to be, um, I don't have to be in the studio all the time because I need space to think, you know, and I, I, I can't go in every day. You're uh, eight hours a day in the studio artist or were, anyway? 
Um, yeah, if I'm allowed to, I guess, <laughs> yeah. you know. I, 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 I think for me, the thinking is, I like, I, I guess because of making drawing and painting and stuff, in a way I feel like I'm thinking while I'm doing it. And in a way, um, there's something quite meditative about physically making things. And there's also something, um, I, yeah, I, I like making things. I like drawing, and I like the physical act of making things. Um, but, uh, and I, I don't know, I guess that just that's the kind of person I am. I like the sort of solitary nature of being in the studio, and I like um, the the things that happen, you know, late in the evening when you've drank too much coffee and yeah. stuff, everything see, starts to come see, together. That's, that's what I do in my home, in my garden studio, because that's when I have time to be by myself. Oh, yeah. You know, and so that time, and also the great thing about the garden studio is that that can be 24 hours. You know, you can work anytime you like. Whereas if you go to the studio, there's a kind of cut-off point. You know, you go in more, there. More office And then it gets dark and then you have to go home because it's it's not in my home it's about 10 minutes from my home the main studio so it's a bad I just don't want this sort of strict it's different for, for everybody of course but it's strict so 9 to 5 mm. I have to go there at 9 o'clock and then go home at 5 o'clock and it just doesn't work with the way that I think but people are kind of different I guess you know different I guess the difference for me is I don't really have anybody that helps me a lot of the time. So and I do make work that other people help me make, but it's not... Um, I don't really have a team of people who help me. There's right. one guy who happens to live in Glasgow, which isn't that handy. Um, but is that mostly kind of framing? And, I mean, well, be... I, no, he makes... He's been making some stuff, some electric guitars for me recently because that's what I want to make. And um, what, like multiples? Am I right? No, sculpture. Uh, no, kind of like musical instruments. Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, seem to be mistaken for sculptures. Um, so David, does that then mean that uh, you, you you get to keep all the money then for yourself? No, it's not about the money. It's not about economizing. They're just drawings. They're not like big sculptures. It's not about. It's not about economizing. It's just about. I'm just not very good at organizing stuff. And when you move from, you know, I lived in Glasgow for 27 years, and then I moved to Brighton. I don't know anybody. Well, I know a few people now, but um, so I just don't have anybody to help me. I had to have people from the gallery come and help me because I didn't know anybody in Brighton for the last exhibition. So. You know, it's a sad, I'm trying to elicit sympathy here. <laughs> it's, but it's. I just but need. It's, I need. I need. I need some help, but I just don't. It's not. Doesn't appear to be available at the moment. Well, I mean, it's a practice that you can't delegate. I mean, you you're able to have uh, some seamstresses, and I mean, there's it's a kind of work that requires um, different skills, different. Yeah, I mean, the scales. way that my studio is kind of set up is that I have um, the the a lot of smaller studios outside of my studio. So obviously the shipping a bottle can't be made in my studio, it's too big. So, I mean, there are places where that kind of thing would be made. Uh, well, MDM make a lot for the studio sometimes, and uh, there are other than, you know, the costumiers 
I work with a number of costumers, a number of sculptors, and uh, photographer, photographers, and then, I mean, the drawing and the things, obviously I do all that myself, mm. but the actual things that involve a lot of skills, then I also have painters as well. And, but in the studio, it's mainly, because people don't realize how much admin is involved in all of this, you know, because you've got museums. I mean, I don't know how you do it, David. Do you speak to people every day? You know, you can't do that. It's time-consuming. You know, they're, they're, you've got to speak to curators. So you need people to help you with that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, organizing meetings and so on, you know, travel, exhibitions. And then I have a project space, and I have a... Somebody also helps me with the project space because I don't. Then I have a production manager who also helps, you know, because I can't oversee, I can't sure. be running around all these studios, you know, so I need somebody to, you know, help me manage that. And yeah, so before you know, you just got like, and then the production manager needs an assistant. So, <laughs> so you know, and, but they kind of, I started off with just one person just helping me part time. And then it, Kind of, I didn't actually set. I didn't set out to have a business as such. You know, I just, you know, I was solo, just doing my, you know, everything myself. And then I got more shows, and then I needed a bit of help, and then, and then you get more shows, and you need it. You know what I mean? So it just kind of, you know, and then you find that actually you can't. You know, if you sat on the phone calling every museum or gallery or arranging with sure. your New York gallery or your, you know, you just can't do that because it's better to just be making the work, sure. you know, and that's why I, I prefer not to be in the studio all the time because I can, otherwise I'm going to have to deal with some admin thing, <laughs> yeah. you know, so, yeah, it and it's, it, you actually have to fight as an artist, you have to fight for the creative space, mm. it's so important. Otherwise, you can get trapped by admin. Thank you very much to Ginka and to David. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.